In the 60s and 70s, the Minnesota Vikings had a defensive lineman named Jim Marshall, who was a fine player, enjoyed a long uh, career in the NFL. Unfortunately for Jim Marshall, however, the play that he's best remembered for is one that I'm sure he'd rather forget. On October 25th, 1964, the Vikings were facing off against the San Francisco 49ers in a regular season game. And on the crucial play, uh, 49ers running back Billy Kilmer fumbled the ball. And Marshall, demonstrating awareness, quickness, and athleticism, scooped up the loose ball on the run and sprinted full speed all the way to the end zone. The only problem is that he had run to the wrong end zone. In the confusion surrounding the fumble and the mad scramble for the ball, he had gotten turned around, and he ran full speed in the wrong direction. And so instead of scoring a defensive touchdown for Minnesota, he gifted a two-point safety to the 49ers. And he didn't even quite realize his mistake until one of the 49ers players came into the end zone and gave him a high five to thank him for the extra help. Well, that gaffe earned poor Jim Marshall a nickname that wouldn't go away. Wrong Way Marshall. NFL Films dubbed the play the number one bad play in league history. You feel bad for him. He was working hard. He did what he was supposed to do with great skill and prowess, but he got mixed up and went to the wrong end zone. It's very easy for Christians to be a little like this, to spend a great deal of effort and to succeed admirably at the wrong thing because we've run for the wrong end zone. We've gotten mixed up and we're looking at the world from the completely wrong perspective. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, Jesus aims to get us turned around in the right direction and make sure we're headed for the right end zone. So I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6, if you haven't already, as we continue our series, Entrusted, this four-week walk through this passage of Matthew 6, 19 down through 34, as we consider the, the notion of stewardship, what it means to be those who manage God's resources on his behalf. The basic principle of stewardship, as we said last week, is that we don't own anything. Nothing that we have that we think is ours is really ours. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who live in it. It's all his. So what we are entrusted with to do is to carry his resources, to invest his resources in ways that please him, in ways that he intends for those resources to be used. I'm going to read uh, verse 19 through 23. Last week we looked at verses 19 to 21. Today we're adding verses 22 and 23, and that'll be our focus. But just for context, we're going to read uh, all of those verses beginning in 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. 
So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. May the Lord bless us as we consider his word today. In the context of these verses, of this paragraph, and with verses 19 to 21 immediately preceding it, this don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven, it's clear that verses 22 and 23 are all about our perspective concerning this world and our place in it. It's all about how we look at the world, how we see material possessions and investments, what Jesus called treasure back in verse 19. It's all about our perspective on our treasures and resources, the lens through which we view our lives, our money, our possessions, our time, our gifts, our talents, and everything else that is in your life. And there's sort of an implied question for self-diagnosis here. Which kind of treasure do you regard as ultimate? Which kingdom are you living for? Toward which end zone are you running? It's those implied questions that Jesus is answering in these verses. So I want us to break down a little bit of what Jesus means And then we'll see if we can't put some handles on it and try to make this a little more uh, practical so we can get it worked out in our lives. So what he does essentially in verses 22 and 23 is give us this contrast between a good eye and a bad eye, between light and darkness, right? If you have a good eye, you'll be full of light. If you have a bad eye, you'll be full of darkness. And so uh, one one possible meaning here uh, of the, the good eye is that, is that good represents righteousness, while the, the bad eye represents corruption. So the good eye is seeing in line with the kingdom of God, and the bad eye is seeing in a way that's incompatible with his kingdom, and thus is actually unrighteous and, and wicked and worldly. So the question then, of course, is essentially, uh, are you viewing your life and possessions in a manner that's more consistent with the righteousness that characterizes God's kingdom or with the corruption that characterizes this godless world? In other words, is your view of money more like that of Christ or is it more like the world's? Does your perspective of life and wealth cultivate a heart of righteousness and selflessness or does it cultivate the hoarding of and selfishness of unbelief. Those are the end zones that we have the options to run for. Another nuance that sheds some light on Jesus' meaning here is a look at the terms Jesus uses in the original language. So when he says, if your eye is bad, that word bad is translating the Greek word for evil. If your eye is evil. And An evil eye in ancient cultures was an idiom for a jealous or grudging spirit. It was more than just bad eyesight. It was more even than just uh, an eye that loves wicked things. It was particularly a spirit that is greedy and that uh, that is envious and jealous. 
So the evil eye then looks on the possessions of others with envy. Wish I had that. Why is he getting all that and I'm over here, you know, uh, wasting away? So that the evil eye is the greedy eye, the envious eye. And that other phrase, if your eye is healthy, translates the word for the Greek word for simple. So you can have an evil eye or you can have a simple eye. And in that context, I think the sense of simple is that it lacks ulterior motive. It's sincere. It's plain. What it sees is accurate and it doesn't want more than its own share. Whereas the evil eye is a greedy, selfish, envious eye. The healthy eye is the simple eye. And so the difference between a bad eye and a good eye is the difference between envy and contentment. The difference between selfishness and generosity. So he says the eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, the light that we have for the path in front of us comes from the way we view the world broadly, but even specifically the way we view possessions and wealth and money. And so to put this together, a healthy eye is the eye that is trained on the kingdom of God. It's the eye that sees and filters the world and possessions and time and talents through the grid of God's kingdom and eternal life. If you want to run toward the right end zone, you have to have your eye on eternity. It's all about your perspective. Which kingdom, which life looms larger in your view? Is it eternal life? Is it the eternal kingdom of God, or is it the here and now of this physical world and this physical life that we live right now? Now, if a healthy eye sees this eternal perspective, the kingdom of God as ultimate, then the bad eye is the the exact opposite of that. It's the eye that sees this earthly kingdom, the kingdom of self, as the priority. It's the eye that sees this world, this life, this kingdom as ultimate reality and the highest priority. And if that's the way I see things, if that's the way I look at my life and my possessions now, this is the most important thing, this is ultimate reality, then I'm going to invest accordingly. I'm going to, as Jesus warns us against, hoard treasures for myself here because this is what's most important. So the good eye then means that I see God's kingdom as ultimate and I want to invest my life here in such a way as to maximize my treasures there and my enjoyment of that life forever. The bad eye is the greedy eye, the selfish eye that sees this current world as all there is, this earthly life as ultimate reality. And if that's what I think about life, then that's where all my time and energy and money is going to go to build for myself the kingdom and the life that I want right here. What my life looks like and feels like right now is really important to me if this is the life that looms largest in my view. Jesus is trying to get us turned around to see things from a different perspective. This life is not 
all there is. It's not even the most important thing. The more important, the more real, the more lasting life is the one on the other side of the grave and the resurrection in the new creation. When he says at the end of verse 23, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Essentially what he's saying is if your only source of light, right, because the eye is the lamp of the body, that's what brings light to your path and helps you see the world. If your eye, that only source of light, is bad and is actually filling you with darkness, how great is that darkness? If your only source of light is clouded with greed and selfishness, then you will grope and wander in meaningless abundance. Even if you succeed at acquiring wealth, pleasure, and status, you will have wasted your life. You will have made it into the wrong end zone. What a pity, says Jesus. How great is the darkness. What a shame to spend your life on a kingdom that isn't going to last. Jesus essentially answers the question here, what are the chief roadblocks to kingdom-first giving? What gets in the way of our generosity and our kingdom-minded investments? The answer, we've got our eye on the wrong kingdom. We're running toward the wrong end zone. So the summary so far, verses 19 through 23, don't waste your time hoarding treasures on earth because they won't last. Instead, build up treasures in heaven Invest in your life now in such a way that you store up treasures in heaven because they will last and your heart will follow them there. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And the way that you avoid the pitfalls and the roadblocks to that kind of kingdom first living is by getting your eye on the right kingdom. By embracing an eternal perspective that interprets every moment of this life in the light of the coming age when we will live forever in his presence in the new creation, setting your sights on the right end zone. So that's what Jesus seems to be saying in verses 22 and 23. It's pretty simple. It's not terribly complex. It's just look at your life and your possessions in the right way, through the right grid, have your perspective filtered through the grid of the kingdom of God and eternity, and then you'll see clearly what to do with all the stuff that God entrusts to you. So how do we get a better idea of how to make practical sense of this? Well, there, there's an image that I have found helpful that I want to show to you. Yes, there's a slide today, all right? Some of you are real excited, I can tell. All right, so on the wall behind me, you should see a dot and a line. Our visual aids are really top-notch. When you get a slide for me, it looks like this, all right? So you choose. So the dot over here on the left of the screen represents your current life. This is life in this world. This is all that you have, all of your money and possessions, your house, your car, your clothes, whatever, your family, your wife, your kids, your friends, um, 
your relationships. It, it, this is everything that you have, everything that's true about your life now is in that dot. And that dot is comparatively small. It's, it's got a start. It's got an end. It, it's finite. Everything that you know and experience and think and have and use and all the time you spend is all contained within that dot. The line represents the kingdom of heaven. This is your eternal future. The never-ending life that you'll experience after you die in God's new creation forever. It starts, but it doesn't end. It keeps going. Our screen is not long enough to show the rest of eternity, all right? So the dot is this life. The line is eternity. This is the life you'll spend with God in heaven forever. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to consider which of those lives, the dot life or the line life, are the better investment. Which one should I invest in? Well, if I take all of my time and talents and resources and relationship and pour them all into this dot to make sure that the dot is as big and beautiful and enjoyable as it can possibly be, but I haven't invested in the line, then when I get to the line, because you will, because the dot ends, we all die. It's appointed to man to die once and then comes judgment. When I get to the line, what do I have? If everything I invested was in beautifying the dot, what do I have when I get to the line? I thought I was going to get to take all my dot treasure with me. You can't. Everything you own stays at the dot. No matter how beautiful that dot is, when the dot is over, it stays there. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to invest everything that I have and all of my energy and resources in the dot, in my job or in my hobbies or whatever, in my comfort, in my entertainment. It doesn't make sense. So in other words, living for the dot is not only wrong, it's also foolish. Jesus is concerned with our perspective, right? This eye is the lamp of the body, and if you have a healthy eye, you're going to see things the right way. What he's talking about is this. The healthy eye is the eye that lives for the line and not for the dot. The healthy eye is the one that recognizes that, that line life, that eternal life, that's bigger, that's longer, that's more meaningful than the dot. The healthy eye prioritizes the line over the dot. And I think this image sort of helps us visualize the relative value of where we place our investments. So let me ask you this. Which one are you living for? Which one shows up more frequently in your thoughts, in your fears, in your hopes, in your conversations, in your budgeting and financial planning, in your schedule. If you were to look at your time and how it is spent, how much of the time that you spend 
is dot time versus line time. Is there more stuff in your life, plans, conversations, money, relating to making the dot the best it can be or making investments in the eternal kingdom that will never end? The missionary martyr Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So maybe your dot won't be as beautiful or as fun as somebody else's dot. But if you're making sacrifices in the dot for the sake of beautifying the line, you're no fool. You're actually living the exact way that Jesus calls us to live. And he was clearly living for the line. Jim Elliott knew that the gain accumulated for the dot was fleeting, and so he invested himself in the eternal kingdom of God. Indeed, he gave up his very life for it as a Christian martyr. How do you see your life? Which kingdom is most important to you? Let me suggest a few signs that you might be stuck in the dot. So that's, that's essentially the question. We all wrestle with this. We all feel very dot-bound at times. Right? Our lives feel really crazy and huge and important, and I've got big things and lots of worries and lots of hopes and lots of concerns about what's going on in the dot. It's easy. It's natural to fall into that. But how do we know? Because we might think, we want, we want to be easy on ourselves. Well, you know, I, I think I'm doing okay. I think I live for eternity more than the dot. Well, here's, here's a few signs that you might be stuck in dot living. Number one, stinginess. Just general stinginess. Just lack of generosity. I don't like to give. I don't like to make sacrifices. If we're stingy with what we give, it's probably because we've bought into the lie that the kingdoms we build for ourselves on this earth are going to last. Jesus tells us plainly this isn't so. So if we think it will, we simply don't believe him. So there is a matter of belief or unbelief here regarding how we relate to our stuff and our earthly possessions. Randy Alcorn on this point says, giving is the only antidote to materialism. The act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's all about God and not about us. It's saying, I'm not the point, he is the point. He does not exist for me, I exist for him. God's money has a higher purpose than my affluence. Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. Giving affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me and exalts him. It breaks the chains of mammon that would enslave me. That actually touches on the verses that we'll look at next week about whom we're enslaved to. But the notion here of the antidote to materialism, that is this overvaluing of what we have and what we possess and what we can hoard for ourselves, the antidote to, to stinginess is giving. Releasing what we have is the only way to break ourselves out of this dot-obsessed stupor 
as though this life, this kingdom, is all that matters, and I need to beautify this dot as much as I can. Generosity itself can be an antidote to break this cycle, sort of an act of defiance against the world's hold on your heart. I don't think so, heart. I'm going to give sacrificially for an eternal purpose and fight against that idol. So stinginess, if giving is about the hardest thing you can imagine doing, you might be stuck in the dot. Number two, debt, crippling debt. I realize life is complex and there are real challenges and I don't want to oversimplify here, so forgive me for broaching it, but we usually rack up debt for ourselves because we simply cannot wait. That's usually the reality. That's usually why we end up in situations where we owe more than we have. We want what we want, when we want it, and we want it now. And if there's this magic card that I can swipe and I can get what I want and I don't have to pay it till later, then why wouldn't I do that, right? That's the, that's the logic behind it. The fullest, greatest joy of a Christian is in the kingdom to come. When Jesus returns and we are in his presence forever. But we are often very short-sighted. And we start to think, that's an awfully long time to wait. I'm sure heaven's going to be great, but I don't know when that's happening. And I can't see it from here. And I really want this thing right now. Or I really need to pay this bill right now and I already spent all my money on this other thing, so I'm going to go ahead and put this bill on that card. That's the, we get stuck in those patterns because we're short-sighted and we forget that the dot is not the most important thing. It's not all that there is. And I think we honestly believe at times that we're going to find happiness in stuff. The more stuff we have, the more comfortable we are, the more entertainment options are before us all the time, the happier we'll be. I think we actually begin to believe those lies of the world. Might I say the lies of the devil? Treasures on earth are fleeting and insignificant compared with the joy we can experience now in generosity and the glory of God in which we'll get to share when we're in eternity with him. The treasures of the kingdom of heaven are much bigger and deeper and brighter and more beautiful than you can imagine. They're way better than a big screen TV or a, an awesome vacation or a house on the beach or whatever it is you feel like you've got to have. Whatever that you would fill in that blank with. If I could just get that, then I'd be happy. That thing on the line is an idol that is likely to drag you into debt because you're willing to pay what you don't have in order to acquire it. C.S. Lewis famously said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's true of me. Is it true of you? 
We're far too easily pleased. We think we're going to find happiness and pleasure and joy in the, beauty, the beautifying of the dot instead of deferring that joy to an eternal kingdom that's going to last. So, if you are in crippling debt, or that seems to be the constant reality that you live with, you might be stuck in the dot. The last one I'll suggest, although I'm sure the list could go on, and you might have other things running in your mind right now that the Holy Spirit is pricking your conscience about. Oh gosh, I think I'm stuck in the dot because this or that. But I'll just give you one more. Just discontentment. Just never satisfied. Unhappy. I never have enough. Nothing ever seems to go right. If you're just discontented with life, it may be because you're expecting too much from it. The Bible tells us this is not our home. This is not the rest that God has promised to us. This is wilderness living. First Peter calls us aliens and sojourners. We're exiles. This is not home. We are people who belong to a heavenly kingdom that we can't see. We haven't arrived at yet fully. So if we're expecting our wilderness life to be filled with comfort and joy and happiness and all of the sort of blessings and ease that we can imagine, then you're probably expecting too much from this life. Sometimes we try to establish for ourselves a sort of paradise on earth, and it's just not working. Why can't I get happy? Well, because this isn't paradise. Because this world is not your home. Because God created you and Jesus saved you to invite you to the line, not the dot. The line is where Jesus' mind is. And it's where he calls our mind to be as well. So if you're just discontented with life, maybe you're living for the dot instead of for the line. Friend, where do you find yourself today? Are you living for the line of eternity and its rewards, or do you feel like you might be stuck in the dot? Are you investing your time, money, and talents for the kingdom of God or for the kingdom of self? Are you running for the right end zone? Maybe as an exercise to sort of help you think through this, you could get a pen and paper and write down what are my values? What, what are the things that I believe are most important to me? What motivates my giving and spending patterns? What kingdom causes am I investing in and how? Is my life characterized by generosity or by stinginess and greed? Sometimes when you write out things like that, you'll find there's a gap between what I say I really value and how I'm actually living. And that gap, awareness of that gap is a mercy because it's God calling to us. Leave the dot. I'll take care of the dot. You focus on the line. Which kingdom do you think Jesus lived for? How was his eyesight? In Ephesians 5, Paul, the apostle, is instructing husbands on how to love their wives. And in that passage, he says, of Christ, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, the Son of God took on human flesh and gave up his life to rescue for himself a bride, a people for his own possession, an eternal inheritance. He had his eyes on the eternal kingdom where those he saved by the shedding of his blood would live with him forever and share in his glorious reign. And because Jesus died to sanctify the church, to cleanse her and present her holy and without blemish, there's hope for us. Even in the midst of our twisted, kingdom-distorting, dot-obsessed vision, where we've been greedy and discontented, he can cleanse us. He can make us new. He can give us new eyes to see the way he sees. If you'll ask him to, he'll take your upside-down, inside-out perspective on treasures and flip them right-side-up, freeing you to generously unleash your resources for his glory and for your eternal reward. Let's get our eye on the right end zone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you include passages like this in your word to challenge us, to make us aware of our own weaknesses and our own tendencies to slide back on an incline toward ourselves and our comfort, toward our joy, toward our ease. And we confess, Lord, that sometimes giving is painful. Sometimes giving feels like death to us. Yet, Lord, we thank you that you've given us in Jesus Christ, a model of self-sacrifice and of giving with an eye on eternal reward, eternal realities. And we pray that you would correct our vision, that you would fix our eyesight so that we might see the line of eternity and life in your presence forever as bigger and more beautiful, and more important, and more joyful than life on the dot of life in this world. Help us, Lord, to live faithfully as your stewards, investing in things that will last for your glory, for your kingdom. Make us more like Jesus in this, we pray. For his sake.